The story of Jacob and Esau poses a serious theological question for readers. If God uses Jacob's deceitfulness and trickery to accomplish his purpose, does that mean we can do whatever we'd like? Since God will, in the end, turn bad into good? In other words, friends, do our actions, whether good or bad, pure or corrupt, virtuous or vicious, do they even matter? If all things work together for good, why bother paying attention to our behavior? Well, in Baptist history, you see this issue on full display in 17th century England. I'm sure this past week we've all been thinking about 17th century England, right? The earliest Baptists in England were divided into what's called the particular and general Baptists. The particular Baptists, among other things, held closely to the teachings of John Calvin and his followers, so the Reformed tradition. And there were some radicals among the particular Baptists, not many, but some, who so stressed God's sovereign causation of all things that they became morally lax thinking that their actions, behaviors, whatever they might be, were a component, a tool in God's plan. Now, such extremism, I think, has faded mostly from within the Baptist tradition. But the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility is still a very live question today. If God is so sovereign as to take evil and turn it into good, why bother expending so much effort choosing good over evil? If every deceptive deed can be transfigured into a key ingredient in God's plan, why bend over backwards trying to do the right thing all the time? Well, in Genesis 29, we may not get the whole answer, but we do get an answer. Jacob, if you recall, in Genesis 25, came out of the womb grasping his brother Esau's heel. He was vying for Esau's birthright and blessing from the very beginning. Jacob then went on to trick Esau into giving him the birthright. Remember the stew? And in a section we didn't actually read, he tricked his father Isaac into giving him the blessing as well. In that story, friends, of Jacob and Esau, the younger replaced the older. And in our story for this morning, something very similar happens. Jacob at this point is still looking for a wife. And he travels from Beersheba, where his family was living, to Padan Aram, which is where his mother Rebekah was from. And once there, Jacob meets two of his cousins, and he prefers the younger, Rachel, for a wife. In the end, though, the girls are switched. And Jacob himself is deceived 
Jacob becomes the target then of the very same trickery he pulled before. Poetic justice, as pure as it gets. But through such trickery, friends, the 12 tribes of Israel are born. Through such deceit, God's kingdom purposes are fulfilled. What this means is that God can make good out of evil, yes. But our actions do matter, yes. Both are true. There's more to the discussion than this, but I think Genesis 29 at least helps. And so we'll read the text together in a moment, and we'll study it verse by verse. But before we do that, friends, let's take a moment to pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word, standing up here and loving it in public. That's what preaching is. Exposing the word of God to travelers who desperately need to know your will. We are travelers like Jacob, looking, longing for you, Lord, would you please be present with us this morning as we look for Jesus in this story? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, turn with me, if you haven't already, friends, to Genesis 29. Genesis 29, continuing in our series of sorts in the book of Genesis. Uh, Last week, we looked at Genesis 28 which was the beginning of Jacob's journey to Padan Aram. At this point, he has made it there, and like Abraham's servant from before, he meets a woman at a well, a common type scene in biblical literature. After rejoicing upon finding this woman, who turns out to be Rachel, he goes on to meet Laban, her father, which is actually his uncle. And after staying with him for about a month, Our passage begins in verse 15. So Genesis 29, verses 15 through 28, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah 
and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so, and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And there's more to the story, but that's where we'll stop. You may be seated. In this passage, friends, we see that the very deceit that was used by Jacob before falls on his very own head. And as I pondered the passage, it seemed to resemble a kind of conversation between the two men, between Jacob and Laban. A conversation in which questions and answers take the form of actions at times. So if you don't open up your Bibles, if you have it there, verse 15, Laban begins by asking Jacob a question. He says, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages, wages be? So according to verse 14, it had been about a month since Jacob had arrived in Padanaram. And Jacob was working for Laban maybe serving as a hired hand in the field, perhaps as a shepherd with his daughter Rachel, who we'll find out is a shepherdess. And after a month of working for his uncle, Laban talks about wages. And here, I think, the conversation, the back and forth, gets going officially. So in verses 16 through 18, we get a kind of editorial aside And we've had these before in the book of Genesis. A couple examples. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years, almost in parentheses. Or Sarah had no child for she was barren. Kind of editorial comment. Here the aside comes right after the question about wages and reads, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older, so the firstborn, was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes, it says, were weak, or you could translate soft or even pretty. But but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. There was a Freudian slip right there. I almost said Jacob. But friends, to parallel the two sons, Jacob and Esau, here we have two daughters, Rachel and Leah. And the only details provided, like with the boys, is their order of birth and their general appearance. Now, I think Leah gets a bad rap when folks translate the Hebrew adjective as weak. The ESV does so, but it has a little note at the bottom. There's one English translation that goes so far as to say there was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. Yikes. Friends, this is the mother of Judah and Levi. 
the mother of all the kings of Israel, of all the priests of Israel, the mother, the matriarch, the ancestor of Messiah Jesus. This word in Hebrew should not be interpreted, in my opinion, as weak or ugly, but as tender, pretty. Leah had beautiful eyes, beautiful eyes. That was her most defining physical feature. And eyes in the book of Genesis symbolize discernment, intelligence, and wisdom. Especially in a story where some eyes are rather blind and undiscerning. Rachel, on the other hand, is said to be stunning in physique and in general appearance. So while Leah is, has beautiful eyes and is perceptive, Rachel is attractive, desirable. Now, I, I hate talking this way because I'm nearly objectifying these women. But the text takes pains to juxtapose their appearance for the purpose of the story. So I'm just trying to do that. At this point, we return to Laban's question from before, what shall your wages be? It hasn't been answered yet. And of course, Jacob's response relates to this oh-so-subtle aside about the daughters. He says in verse 18, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now remember, Jacob was sent to find a wife. And in the story, it says he's at least 40 years old. And God had promised him all these descendants. But Jacob has no money, really, no bride price to give. And so Laban's question leads to the perfect solution. He says, I will work for you for the hand of your daughter, but not for the hand of your older daughter, rather the younger, Rachel. Well, Laban then responds, in a way, in verse 19. But friends, he doesn't clearly say yes. It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me, is what he says. He agrees then with the general possibility of Jacob marrying Rachel, but he says nothing definitive about the timing or, as we'll see, the, the order of such a marriage. He doesn't even say yes. He simply says, stay with me. Keep working in the fields. Well, moving on to verse 20, Jacob, it says, served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Seven years, friends, was no small price. And the author does not want us to see this as a bargain. But his love of Rachel is so strong that even such a lengthy period seems like but a few days. So in verse 21, Jacob approaches Laban with the understandable demand. He says, give me my wife that I may wed her, for my time of service is complete. Now, I modified the text slightly because 
The plain reading in the ESV, I think, is a bit crass. But after waiting seven years for his seemingly pledged, desirable wife, Jacob is getting, you could say, impatient. And the parallel, friends, with Esau's impatience from before is just so worth noting. Recall how Esau came in from the field exhausted and hungry, ripe for deception. Jacob, in the same way, after seven years of being in the field, is tired of waiting. He comes in and is ripe, like his brother, for deception. In verse 22, conversation keeps going, and Laban responds. But again, he doesn't say yes. It says he gathered together all the people, so the relatives, the servants, the inhabitants of the place, and he made a feast, a wedding feast, it seems. And in the evening, when the marriage would be consummated, Laban, it says, took his daughter, Leah. Leah. Now, this language is so similar to chapter 27, which we didn't actually read together, but in chapter 27, Rebekah, Laban's sister, took her son Jacob rather than Esau to Isaac to steal Esau's blessing. And in that story, Isaac doesn't recognize that it's Jacob rather than Esau whom he's blessing. And just a short while later, it says, Laban took Leah and brought her to Jacob. And it says that he went into her. In other words, the marriage was consummated. It was official. Well, following the text, we get another aside, another editorial aside in verse 24. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. This will become significant later on when you read about the birth of the 12 tribes and which sons were born to which mothers. But here it makes their story look an awful lot like the story of Abraham and Sarah. A story in which Sarah gave Hagar, her servant, to Abraham. And we know how that went. Well, the drama, friends, resumes in verse 25, where we read, in the morning, that is, after the marriage was consummated, in the morning, behold, it was Leah, not Rachel. And Jacob, whose name sounds like heel, who was grasping at his brother's heel, in the womb, said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? This is poetic justice, friends. As pure as it gets. Jacob the deceiver, who is always grasping for the greater portion of the inheritance for leadership of the family, is forced to take his very own medicine. What is this you have done to me? 
And friends, this is not the first time such a question has been uttered in the book of Genesis. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Genesis 3. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Genesis 12. And later, Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? Genesis 44. Deception, friends, is all over the book of Genesis. In far too many places to ignore. Well, Laban then in verse 26 Cool and collected, it seems, after the switch-up. He says, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And I imagine he emphasized the word our. He's looking at this young Jacob, his nephew, who displaced his older brother Esau, the firstborn, And he says, that may be how things are done where you come from, but not here, Jacob. Jacob is deceived. Jacob is caught by his own favorite trap. Complete the week of this one, Laban says in verse 27, and we will give you the other also, provided... You work another seven years. Laban has thus secured 14 years of free labor from Jacob, his nephew. Wow. And Jacob did so, it says in verse 28. He completed her week. That is, he engaged in the wedding festivities with Leah for the remainder of the week. And then he began to work uh, a week's worth of years for the hand of Rachel. But Laban, it says, gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife at the beginning, it seems, of the second set of seven. And if you go on in the story, you'll see the children who were born to Leah, Zilpah, Rachel, and her servant Bilhah, who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. So that's the story. God, it seems, can make good out of evil. But our actions, friends, do matter. Both, both are true. We see this on full display, I think, in the life of Jacob, whose name would become Israel. This idea, therefore, is inherent in the people of Israel, God's chosen nation, who would be the main character in the majority of our Bible. Friends, can you think of a time when you felt like Jacob? A time when you grasped for something in life and ended up harming others along the way? 
Can you think of a time when later on you were similarly harmed or deceived? And at the end of it all, did you see God at work? Were his purposes fulfilled? Our actions do matter because they can either harm or heal real people, like the people sitting right next to you in the pew. I mean, just because an action doesn't irretrievably alter the fate of the universe doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It does, friends. It does. One of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry, writes, You cannot harm what you're dependent on without ultimately harming yourself. You cannot harm what you're dependent on without ultimately harming yourself. Now, in his writings, he's talking about the earth, about creation, but I think this truth applies here as well. I've said it before, but human beings do not exist alone. We're caught in a a meshwork of creaturely life in which the actions and lives of other people affect us, sometimes deeply. Now, what this means is that when we trick, deceive, or harm a member of creation, that in turn, it seems, harms us later on. And I know this sounds an awful lot like karma, but I think the idea of operative justice like this, I, I think it is biblical to an extent. What goes around comes around is at least what Genesis seems to think. The caveat, the huge caveat, though, that I'd include here is that if you are currently suffering, friends, that doesn't mean that you personally deserve it, that, that you are, are sinning and need to just repent and that suffering will leave. That is not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. We live in a broken world in which we experience pain, anxiety, depression, trauma. And like with the man born blind in the Gospels, it it doesn't mean it's just because we sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that even if we deceive and mistreat others, even when we deceive and mistreat others, and even when we are deceived and mistreated, God is still working. The purposes of God are not thwarted by the pain we inflict or the pain we suffer. That doesn't give us license to do bad things, But it means that God's gospel mission is not completely jeopardized when we act like sinners. God's promises, His plan persist despite, even through, our failure, friends. I think that is on full display in this story. Let me close with this. 
Our actions matter. They do. They can either harm or heal precious members of God's creation. But I want you to take heart this morning in knowing that no matter how treacherous, how deceitful we may be, no matter how much treachery and deceit has fallen upon us, God can turn the darkest evil, the darkest evil, into the brightest good. Let's pray. You may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Statement closing the book of Genesis about Joseph, but Lord, the same thing applies to you, Jesus. Crucifying the darling of heaven, the Son of God, we meant it for evil. We did. But somehow, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, would lead to Resurrection Sunday. Lord, you do not promise that we will never face travails, darkness, suffering. But we see such suffering, not eliminated, but transfigured in the wounds of Jesus. Help us to walk with you. Help us not to deceive. But Lord, when we are deceived and when we do deceive, help us to know that your sovereignty is bigger, that your plan persists, and that your gospel mission cannot fail. Amen.